0: Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window podcast, where we take you inside the big stories at the major clubs in world football and also provide you with expert insight and analysis on the issues affecting the game we all love. Delighted to say that joining me today is a regular pundit extraordinaire, Dr Duncan Castles. And even more so, we have a very special guest in Kevin Affleck, currently a freelance journalist working in writing and broadcasting with Watford Football Club. And of course, that's one of the teams contesting this weekend's FA Cup final. Hello to you both. Hello, thank you for having me. Very, very welcome. Very welcome, Kevin. Um, as usual, on a Friday, we like to start with some uh, transfer news. And um, uh, Mr Professor of the Breaking News, Mr Castles, uh, is going to tell us a little bit about who Manchester United Maybe looking at uh, with regard to if David De Gea leaves Old Trafford this summer. Duncan.
1: Yeah, I think that's the key thing here, um, that we have this huge question over David De Gea's future. Um, As we've told you on the Transfer Window podcast for over a year now, uh, problems with renewing his contract Uh, it's got to a stage where um, Ed Woodward has informed the player that he will not meet the financial terms he's asking for to to become the the best uh, paid player at the club on the same uh, level as Alexis Sanchez. Um, Just one year left, he will be able to uh, negotiate under freedom of contract, um, a pre-contract deal with a foreign club in six months' time and that's the threat Manchester United have been working on. We saw Ligunar Solskjær. Uh, in his most recent press conference, say that the club were still talking to De Gea and that um, he was hopeful that something would be resolved. What is definitely happening now is that Manchester United are looking for alternatives. Um, they have started uh, to look at the market and ask um, clubs um, for pricing on goalkeepers uh, and talk to the agents of those goalkeepers to see um, uh, their interest in coming to Manchester United what they'd want in salary terms and I, I think that tells you um, underlines that Manchester United do not know what De Gea is going to do they're worried about losing him they are considering um, selling him this summer um, and therefore taking the money um, available to them in the last chance to sell uh, their best player before he would leave under freedom of contract And bringing a replacement in. One of the goalkeepers who is on that list of potential replacements is Jasper Sillison, who is the second choice goalkeeper at Barcelona, um, transferred there from Ajax several years ago. At that point, was regarded as one of the top young goalkeepers in European football, but um, has never... Uh, fully managed to establish himself as the first choice of Barcelona and I'm told Barcelona are open to selling him this summer. Um, the price is, you well know, he has a 60 million euro release clause and two years left in his deal but it's an indication of his status at Barcelona The Barca are asking for a 25 million euro guaranteed payment with um, uh, performance related bonuses on top uh, which would make him Uh, relatively cheap in the uh, current market for goalkeepers, where we saw Alisson go to Liverpool um, for over €70 million and uh, Kepa to Chelsea for a a record um, transfer fee for a goalkeeper of €80 million last summer. Um, The key element, though, here is what happens with De Gea and uh, and that that complication to Manchester United's uh, recruitment Um, and rebuild project Um, we know they want to shift a lot of players out Uh, we know they want to bring a lot of players in one player they don't want to have to shift out is De Gea but uh, that situation might be out of their hand
0: So Kevin I've got two questions for you now the first one is a technical one as you have been an editor of Duncan's in the past if it came two and a half minutes to mention Jasper Sillison in a piece he'd written for you with regards to a possible transfer to Manchester United, I think that's probably, we're looking at maybe 20th paragraph of a piece. Would you have said, please get on in the intro, Duncan? Yes or no? Yes. Good. Okay. And the second one is, because we like to keep people on our to- their toes in this podcast, especially Mr. Castles. Um, at Watford, you've experienced uh, a similar situation with regards to a key player leaving and that was last season when Richarlison was um, transferred to Everton for £50 million how difficult is it and obviously Dehe has been Manchester United's player of the, the year five out of the last seven years how difficult is it if you lose a key player like that to replace him how do you go about it and do you think well I suspect you do think it's been a successful season
2: yeah it's an interesting one that because the um, loss of a Richarlison has proved to be kind of seamless um he was held up as their kind of star sign in their kind of wonder kid but it was interesting when Javi gracia took over he may he substituted richarlison in the first half a dozen games and in the last half a dozen games he was even on the bench so i would argue kind of they got anywhere between 35 million and 50 million depending which um newspaper reports you read for essentially a, a player on the periphery um so it ended up being very very good business um and they, and they sanctioned the sale because they knew they had the strength in depth. They knew they had Roberto Pereira coming back from injury. So it didn't actually po- uh, produce or it wasn't actually that, that big a loss. They, they knew they could absorb the, the loss of Richarlison. They knew they could use the money to invest further in the team, where, which is where I think the um, comparison is quite different to De Gea because I think De Gea is fundamental to what Manchester United are doing. And I'm not sure how they quite cover and absorb the loss of, of De Gea.
0: Do you think, though, sometimes, Kevin, um, the loss of the star player can often galvanise the rest of the players and the rest of the squad into becoming a better team? I think we've seen it at Liverpool with the loss of Felipe Coutinho. Um, Duncan and I spoke recently as well about um, the performances of Tottenham Hotspur without Harry Kane uh, mm-hmm. almost being um, more positive because the differential of possession was never the question to your key player.
2: Yeah, and I think it's a classic case of kind of the whole being greater than the sum of its individual parts. Um, I think Watford tailed off badly last season under Richarlison and and he didn't really—I didn't think he scored a goal after November, so it wasn't quite as key as as many thought. But yeah, it's it's, it's a terrific point, uh, particularly when you look at Spurs—they've reached the Champions League final without the loss of without Harry Kane. Now, who would have thought that was that was even possible? So I think there's a real argument for saying kind of take the money and as long as you invest it wisely. And then, and it, then it gives the incentive to other players kind of to step up and, and, and take a greater kind of uh, prominence in the team. Away from uh, Manchester United
0: uh, and even Watford and Everton, Duncan, um, some strange things happening um, over the pond in America. Uh, we've got um, Chelsea playing a game in Boston uh, uh, this week. Um, Sarri has been absent from press conferences. He, the, the club are saying it's due to a stomach bug, um, but constant speculation still um, over his future at Stamford Bridge. Uh, do you have any updates for us on on that particular situation?
1: Yes, um, I, it's interesting. Sarri is out there and uh, and and unhappily out there. I think he's been complaining that uh, Chelsea have been taken away to America while he's trying to prepare for um, a Europa League final, um, which, of course, is uh, a point that previous managers of the clubs have been upset with Chelsea's decision to go on end of season or pre-season tours to to places that makes that makes preparation for the manager more complicated and to, to get money um, out of those moves. Um, Sarri's situation is interesting in that uh, as we, you know, talked about in the transfer window podcast, um, through this season, he, he has been on the verge of being sacked twice. Um, there's been, uh, Chelsea have done work in, in, in terms of talking to replacements, interim, potential interim replacements, should they have needed to sack him because results were so poor, um, and because the support, um, had, had enough of, uh, what we've dubbed uh, "Sari bollocks" on the on the podcast. Um, he, at that time, the sense coming from Sari himself was that he was ready to leave the club um, and would have been happy uh, to be sat, take a, a compensation payment from Chelsea, and go back to Italy. He held talks um, with Roma um, about becoming their manager for next season. Roma were keen to get him in place. Um, and had um, been led to believe by Sari that he was ready to leave Chelsea um, and would, was keen on taking the, the position up in the summer. I talked to someone at Roma um, last week, actually, to, to see where that um, those conversations were, and was told, "Look, um, we're not confident of getting Sari anymore. Um, the it seems that he he's." He wants to remain in London because the results have improved, because he's got them in the Champions League. Uh, he has the potential to win the Europa League, win the first trophy of his career. Um, and uh, we are having to look at other options uh, because of it. I suspect an element of that might be the mess Roma are in as a club. Um, I talked independently to, to people who have been offered other positions at, uh, at Roma for next season and have done a lot of work assessing um, how difficult it would be to be an employee, a senior employee at Roma. And they've stepped away from those offers because of the, the, the state of the club and the, the owner's reluctance to uh, invest in a, in a squad that's in a, in a bad state. So I think that might be an element in Sari's thinking here. Um, independently, I checked with um, a member of Sari's uh, coaching staff this week and um, his word on what was happening was, we have no idea. We do not know whether the club are going to keep us or not. We're waiting for them to make a decision. So you've got this bizarre um, set up where um, is preparing for a Europa League final. He's, he seems to be shifting his own stance on uh, whether he'd like to remain in the Premier League for another season. Um, the club has not told him what they're going to do. Um, you talk to people around the club, uh, there's still uh, a question over whether they want to change. There, For a long period, people were saying they will definitely change, but now there's doubt over that. Um, some of the candidates here are interesting. We've got Nuno at Wolves and um, Javi Garcia, who will be uh, Watford's manager at, um, in the FA Cup final this weekend and I, you know, as we discussed when we talked about Javi Garcia's candidacy for the first time he is very, very suited to what Chelsea would like from a manager and At he's someone who can come in and work with a squad where they're probably going to have a transfer window ban um, so they can't change the personnel won't make a fuss about transfers will work to get them uh, to maximise the, the qualities of the players he has Completely uncontroversial in the media, a gentleman, um, a good uh, face for the club, which is something that's important to Chelsea. Um, and I'd be interested to to hear what Kevin's view is on on Gracie and whether whether he thinks uh, he would one would be a good fit for for Chelsea and whether he could see that happening this summer should they decide to to sack Sari.
2: Yeah, I read your story with interest, um, Duncan. I think you're absolutely spot on. I think he's. Perfect fit and executives at Chelsea would have noted how he, he gets on with a job with minimal fuss. He doesn't create any adverse headlines about transfers. In fact, the last January window, which is kind of unheard of, and I'm sure you'll both back me up on this, Degrassi actually said, I don't want any more players. Don't give me any more players. I want to work with the ones I've got now. You both have been in plenty of press conferences and briefings where managers and coaches are kind of demanding and moaning they haven't got enough players. Um, never
0: heard that, Kevin, before my life. Never heard <laughs> after, never. As, as chief executives will always tell you, the thing about managers is
2: they always want more. <laughs> and, and, and this is a guy who breaks the mould. He doesn't. He says, I can get the best out of what I've got. And he felt new players coming in would mean he would have to leave some out and, and upset people. Um, he doesn't moan about, as I said, doesn't moan about injuries. He he gets clubs, he gets the fans. He He, he kind of weaves himself into the fabric of the club um, so I can see, and, and he's so astute tactically, as you'll see, as we we'll talk later on about the FA Cup final. He's always got a plan up his sleeve. His football is far more attractive than people think. I think people pigeonhole Watford as a, a long ball team, get it up to Deeney and, and play for the second balls. But when you've got players of, of the technical capabilities of Capu, Delafoe, and Pereira, they very much play through the thirds. They're very progressive. Now that all sets him up as an ideal candidate for Chelsea particularly with their strong Spanish contingent, I think he'd look to get the best out of them. but for my dealings with him, I just think he's one of the most loyal guys I've come across. He's a man of um, principle and if he's the man, everybody at Watford thinks he is, I, I just can't see that one um, can't see that one happening. Um, he signed a four and a half year contract which is unprecedented in in in, in managerial terms at, at Watford I think. Most managers kind of get a four and a half month contract in, in in previous seasons, but he's got four four and a half years with the ex- option of an extension of a three for the further three years. Now I'm sure Duncan, will tell you, there's probably various clauses in that um, which work both ways, but I'm pretty sure there'd be a huge compensation clause in there if, if if a club like Chelsea were to come to come knocking. But I just go back to a spell he had at um, Almeria in 2013. He got them promoted. And you would have thought that would be the realisation of an ambition to, to coach in La Liga. And he went to the board and the board said, right, we're going to bring in a whole raft of new players because that's the way we think we can survive in La Liga. And he said, no, no, I, I want to be loyal to the players who have got me here. And to, to the point where he actually walked away from coaching Almira in La Liga just through loyalty, just through principle. So I think he's very, very grateful um, for the way Watford gave him an opportunity. He was kind of um, just twiddling his thumbs back in Pamplona after he was sacked from Ruben Kazan. Um, Watford gave him an opportunity and he's very, very grateful for that opportunity. Um, and I think he feels he's got a lot, lot more work to do at this club. So I can see where the link comes from, but I, I just can't see it happening. And that's without my um, without my club hat on.
1: That's, you're absolutely right about the, the compensation that would be required to hire him and that's one of the elements in that long term contract that Watford gave Garcia um, I, the way it was explained to me um, when that contract was being discussed and it was actually um, agreed long before it was publicly announced um, they kind of kept it to, to what they felt was the right moment to put into the public domain was that Watford had realised they had got a very good coach here who had the potential to move um, to a top club in the future. And as we'll discuss later in the podcast, Watford is very much a club that's organised around transfer policy, the the recruitment of players, um, increasing their value and selling them on and reinvesting in that team and Udinese, the other club that the Pozo family own and as it was explained to me they have seen that there is the potential to do something similar with, with managers um, so make a statement with the long term contract um, if Garcia continues to succeed for them and works then they have him tied down but also put in a large uh, clause that should a club like Chelsea uh, Manchester United uh, one of the large Spanish clubs Come in for him. Uh, Watford would be entitled to very significant compensation um, for the coach. But I, as you're explaining here, um, maybe the hardest element in this will be persuading Garcia to, to leave um, the setup that's there. But what I can tell you is that um, I think um, Garcia, I think, talked on Wednesday about how he saw his, his career in at some point in the future uh, being back in Spain. Um, I can tell you that both Sevilla and Betis in Spain have made inquiries as to his availability to coach them next season um, and that those have been turned down. So I think that, that fits with uh, with your description um, and uh, I think also, uh, I believe there was a meeting at Watford um, last week in which they prepared uh, transfer policy next season with um, Gino Pozzo, um, the Director of Football, Filippo Giraldi and Javi. So um, as it stands, the plan is very much to be at Watford next year and take them up uh, to another level.
2: And I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking, why, why would Javi go to Chelsea? Because you're going to come back at me and say it's a high-profile job and the players they've got and the budget and the calibre of players, but... I just think it's a bit of a basket case of a club and, and, and I think unless you're looking for a, a, a payoff, you, you, you get a, a huge contract and get paid off after a year, 18 months. I don't really see the attraction, for, particularly for someone as humble as, as Grassier who, who drives the most humble of cars. Um, he's the most unassuming guy you'll find. He what car do you like, drive, Kevin? Tell us. It, it just drives a very, very modest um, 4x4, which looks like it's been shipped over from um, Spain and kind of pulled out of the car park. And you thought, oh, wow. Well, <laughs> he drives that it's kind of not the, the, the considerable car you normally associate with a with a with a Premier League manager, Premier League he's, manager yeah absolutely he's, he's got none of the trappings of a Premier League manager um, I just I just can't see him being uh, attracted by that job and, and kind of you leave a, a really good gig at Watford a real family club where you're loved and adored to go to Chelsea where let's be realistic in, in 12 to 18 months you might be on the um, on the manager scrap heap again and you might have had a, a lovely payoff but I don't think that's what he's about. I think he wants to build something long term. I
1: guess guess the calculation would be um, if you think this is as far, this is as good a season as you can get, Watford, or as close to as good a season as you get. I know they finished just outside the top ten. Um, I believe that was that cost um, the players quite a lot in terms of bonuses. Um, apparently, they were on a big uh, um, financial incentive if they finished in the top ten of the league. But they, they could have been seventh. They weren't far off um, where Wolves ended up. They're in an FA Cup final. If they win the FA Cup, um, that's pretty much a high. And uh, and then then what's the expectation going forward? You have a chance to move to one of the top clubs still in terms of status in European football, play Champions League. Um, But I agree with you. Um, It's a huge risk going to Chelsea at any time because the history tells you as as soon as you sign your contract at Chelsea, you can prepare yourself to be sacked.
0: Mm. Well, two of the key (laughs) phrases we love on the Transfer Window podcast um, are forensic and thorough. I don't think that we can say uh, that that discussion was anything else but. However, with that last word but in mind, if you see Mr. Castles or Mr. Affleck preparing a uh, strip search at any airport near you soon, make sure you run the other way. Speaking of <laughs> thorough and forensic, we are now moving on to uh, news that all of our listeners. Um, are interested in because we've been speaking about it for such a long time, and that is the revelations uh, this week um, by uh, UEFA regarding Manchester City's potential um, uh, financial fair play play. um, and the transgression of those rules. Now, um, just to keep you up to date, in case you weren't aware, the chief investigator for UEFA, former Belgian Prime Minister Yves Le Terme, has made his recommendation to the um, Financial Control Board Independent Commission at UEFA regarding what sanctions City may face for um, what they believe have been um, breaking financial fair play rules uh, since 2014. Now, as we've reported repeatedly, the the obvious and probably the most um, uh, damaging would be a one-year Champions League ban for Manchester City. Um, Duncan, you've looked at all the documents, you've looked at the information, uh, and I, I suspect you've looked at cities, I think you would describe as rather haughty response. Um, what would be your analysis of what's going on right now?
1: Well, I wish I'd, I'd been able to look at all the documents um, that UEFA have used in this investigation and and uh, and Manchester City have presented in their defence. Um, I, I think the, um, the Independent Investigatory Committee are the only people who have done that. The key thing here is that it's clear that that Independent Investigatory Committee is recommending that Manchester City be punished, that they are on. Uh, un- they find their, the defence of their behaviour that was presented to them unacceptable uh, and unbelievable. And as we have been saying on the Transfer Window podcast for months now, um, they, along with other people, a large number of other people in European football, are feel that City have to be punished with exclusion from European club competition for their transgressions. Um, it's not their decision over what happens. The... UEFA have split their um, FFP uh, punishment process into this independent investigatory chamber and then an adjudicatory chamber looks at their evidence and decides what uh, the final punishment will be. Um, I think City's response uh, is fascinating because it's far more aggressive, um, far less statesmanlike, than anything they've come up with so far. Um, you know, they, they talk about um, disappointed but regrettably not surprised by the sudden announcement of the referral to be made by the CFCB um, by Chief Investigator Yves Le The leaks to the they talk about leaks to the media are indicative of the process that has been overseen by Monsieur Terme. And then Manchester City is entirely confident of a positive outcome when the matter is considered by an independent judicial body. Now, the suggestion there of an independent judicial body is that they are um, threatening to take whatever decision UEFA make um, to other bodies, i.e. the first point of, um, of appeal would be CAS, the um, independent tribunal for sport and then potentially if if CAS were to rule against them to uh, take uh, legal action uh, in a European court Um, I find it fascinating that they've they've put a statement out with that implication in it um, because it kind of fits with what we've heard uh, about the way Manchester City acted the last time um, they were under FFP investigation by UEFA um, there's quite a lot of uh, reporting in the Football League's database that essentially um, Manchester City threatened UEFA with legal action, um, and and uh, and a, a compromise deal was reached, which kept Manchester City in um, in European competition and punished them by preventing them from making transfers for one season. Um, and uh, also giving them a conditional 60 million euro fine, most of which was uh, refunded to them after they'd uh, come back into or at least presented accounts, which showed themselves coming back into, into the um, FFP uh, limits on uh, losses, allowed losses. Um, I think Kevin um, have an interesting insight here because I, you know, I've, I first started working with Kevin when he was uh, editor of the National um, in Abu Dhabi, which is the, the main English language newspaper there. Um and a and a paper that has was obviously very interested in Manchester City and, and reported uh, a lot on the club and, and the beginning of that process of, of trying to win a Champions League.
2: Yeah thanks Duncan um I'll probably leave the um the kind of details of circumnavigating these rules down to you because uh, it's your um, area, area of expertise but what I can do is kind of provide an insight into how this kind of um, threat of action and, and this news will be going down in Abu Dhabi. Um, I was very fortunate to be kind of chief liaison um, from the from the desk and sometimes even the paper with um, leading Manchester City executives, including a, a guy called Simon Pearce, who is um, a director at Manchester City. I think he's vice chairman at Melbourne City, um, the, the club they've got in, in the A-League. And he's also right-hand man to Khaldun, Al Mubarak, um, who's the um, chairman of Manchester City. Now, nothing goes on in Abu Dhabi um, that doesn't go across Simon Pearce's desks. Is uh, across absolutely everything. And and his main role is, is to protect and enhance the reputation of Abu Dhabi. And um, if I had a pound, or should say a dirham, which is the currency in, in UAE, every time he said, let's shut this one down, um, I'd almost be as wealthy as, as the pair of you. Um, but... It's just a fascinating dynamic how it works there. <clears throat> Duncan's alluded to a lot on on, on the transfer window podcast. It, it, it's it's a it's a one big PR project. Um, I don't think that the, the main driver of the, of their investment, their unprecedented investment in Manchester City, is for them to win the Champions League, or because Sheikh Mansour quite likes the Premier League trophy in his in his considerable palace. Um, it's about putting Abu Dhabi on the map and they want Abu Dhabi to be synonymous with success. And if Manchester City can bring that success, then it enhances um, the reputation of Abu Dhabi and the UAE. They want it to increase tourism, and they want it to help the country, and particularly Abu Dhabi, become um, self-sustaining as part of this kind of uh, uh, vision, 2030 vision they've got, which is kind of to diversify their economy and not be so reliant on, um, on the money that's generated by the The oil reserves, which I should add is is the seventh largest in the world, Um, it really is a a, a fascinating um, project, and I can guarantee there'll be emergency meetings, uh, kind of conference calls between Abu Dhabi and 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 Manchester. Um, There'll be kind of some frantic working behind the scenes. There'll be some briefings some some counter briefings and and as duncan said I, I expect the approach to be to to be pretty aggressive on this one um i was privy to a to a briefing i had when um financial fair play first read its head or its ugly head as manchester city would have you believe and i think manchester uh, michel platini was then was the president of um the uefa at that time and kind of the, yeah. the briefing was that if um Platini didn't call off the dogs and I quote the dogs then they would get uh Mohammed bin Zayed who is uh the crown prince of Abu Dhabi to kind of tell um Sarkozy that um their cozy relationship was off. So that was kind of how high and how far reaching um this goes uh, it goes right up to the food chain to to the to the very very top so that's the level was, we're talking about that's he, the level he, of power he, we're he, talking he, about.
1: Sarkozy was president of France at the time.
2: He was yes. So um, that's the level of, of discussion we're talking. And I've actually been in in a, in a, I'll say it's a cafe, but that makes it sound like it's a, <laughs> where you have a, a, a fry-up. But it's, it's, it's much more than that. And I've been sitting with a Man City executive. And on the other table was sitting Khaldun Al Mubarak, Mohammed Bin Zayed and Tony Blair. So that's kind of the circles these guys are mixing in. One minute they're, they're negotiating the transfer of Bernardo Silva and the next minute they're entertaining... Um, Tony Blair and having um, meetings and briefings with with President Sarkozy, so it's a it's a real real mix of uh, politics and football, and, and 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 how this one plays out will be will be absolutely fascinating. That's very
0: true, Kevin, and I can confirm from uh, my very short lived experience of being David General's campaign manager for FIFA president um, and meeting with Michel Platini in uh, Neum in Switzerland at UEFA headquarters. His very close relationship with President Nicolas Sarkozy with regards to how things um, were uh, going down, if you like, at UEFA at that time. So um, I think it's very, very fascinating to hear um, that (laughs) this is the level at which football politics gets played out now. Um, In terms of this particular development, though, Kevin, um, we've seen a very, very robust response from Manchester City this week, um, effectively questioning UEFA's motivation, questioning their process and questioning the the legitimacy of the charges against them. Um, With regards to your experience of working in Abu Dhabi, is that kind of a, a normal sort of, well, we decide what happens and therefore you can't question
2: us? Absolutely, it's got um, it's got Simon Pearce um, stamped all over it. Um, he's very aggressive, and <laughs> we used to call him um, Psycho for a couple of reasons. One, because of his occasional volatile temperament, and also obviously because Pearce, Stuart Pearce, Psycho. You um, you see where <laughs> I'm going with that one. Um, but it, it's just typical of, of their aggressive stance. And another little anecdote was around the time um, Tottenham beat Manchester City to the place in the Champions League when Peter Crouch scored at the Etihad think that might have been circa 2010 2011. I think Harry Redknapp had come out and said he um, had been quite aggressive and critical of Manchester City's stance with transfers. Um, I think it was to do with Palacios or or Bellamy at the time. And I think they got Both the message. legends, of course. Of course, yes. <laughs> um, I think they then got the message to to Joe Lewis, the, the Tottenham owner, that if he didn't kind of. Get, uh, Redknapp to wind his neck in that he was no longer permitted to park his um, considerable yacht um, round the back of Emirates Palace in Abu Dhabi. So um, that's how <laughs> aggressive they yeah. can be in their in their stance. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's one big it's one big PR project, and um, uh, they've got Simon Pearce in um, based in Abu Dhabi. Although he's that important to the project, that well respected by Khaldun, that highly rated by Sheikh Mansour that highly respected by um, Mohammed bin Zayed, who I should add, a lot of talk is about Mansoor being the owner, but that the strings are pulled by uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed. Everybody there, especially Caldoun and Pierce, refer to him as the boss. He's the boss. He runs the show. He pulls the strings. Nothing will happen without his say-so. But just back to Pierce, he's so important that when I left in 2012... Um because there's only so much tax-free money you can earn and permanent sunshine you can have, that Pierce was allowed to split his time between Australia and Abu Dhabi. That's how important he is to the project. Um he's their go-to guy, he's the Mr. Fixer, he's the troubleshooter. So he'll be um, all over this one and th- their aggressive response is is no surprise to me whatsoever.
1: I think I think the key key thing there is to the underline that this is a state project. There's this, this there's always been this um story that Sheikh Mansour bought the football club out of his own self-interest oh. because he loved football this is the man who's only attended one Manchester City match live in the in the stadium he redeveloped in what over 10 years of owning the club um but actually as you say it's the crown prince is the boss and two of the senior directors at Manchester City are um his has two most trust or two of his most trusted deputies in the government of Abu Dhabi, um, which is you know gives a lie to the idea it's just a a vanity project or the presentation it's a vanity project of Sheikh Mansour's.
2: And, and they, all all the sheikhs, the brothers, <clears throat> and I think I think from memory there's nine of them. They've all got their playthings. They've all got their little projects in their own in their own league, which is the UAE um, Pro League. I think it's called um, Mansour's got uh, Al Jazeera. Um, and his brother, one of his brothers, Sheikh Hazar has got uh, Alain. Um, that brings me to a funny story, which I think um, deserves a wider audience. Um, I was told by the analyst at Alain, which is Sheikh Hazar's club, that one day he said to uh, the analyst, Can you stop what you're doing? Um, I want you to go and, I think this was circa 2010, he said, Can you go and draw me up a list of the top five midfielders in Europe? And he said, Oh, okay. So he's gone away thinking, God, Alain are gonna gonna sign a big name player here, um, and he's drawn up him a list of five. And he thought I probably won't include Xavi and Iniesta because they're not really kind of attainable. So I drew up a list of um, five. So I've gone to him first thing in the morning, presented this document. Here they always call them uh, your highness. Otherwise, kind of you'll be on the first plane back to London if you don't refer to them as your highness. Um, so, drew up this list, and Sheikh Hazard said, "Thank you very much." And he said, there to us, can I can I just ask um, what it's for? Are, are we looking to sign somebody here?" He said, um, "It's Sheikh Mansour's birthday, and I want to buy him a midfielder for um, Manchester City." And top of that <laughs> list was um, top of that list was Yaya Toure. Oh, sensational! Now,
0: this guy, Yaya, this guy is the, not irony not is capable. Yaya fell out with City over the fact he didn't get a birthday cake. Yaya could have turned up in Abu Dhabi with a candle on his head.
2: This guy's not prone to hyperbole, so I've got no other reason than to believe him. But this this just a just an example of kind of the sums of money involved in these guys and and the wealth that they got that they buy each other kind of um, uh, high level midfielders as birthday presents. yeah, my my wife got me a, a trip up the Shard for my birthday this year, which doesn't quite. Um, to be fair, that's quite good actually. Yeah, she did well. I can, I actually, did well. Congratulations on
0: that.
1: And when when you're when you're buying Yaya Toure as a birthday present, um, it shows you what 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 the importance of having proper financial fair play rules in European football are. Because if we don't have them, then the game in Europe basically becomes a plaything for uh, Qatar owning Paris Saint Germain, Abu Dhabi owning Manchester City, and then if Saudi Arabia were to get their way and buy Manchester United, you have you would have another uh, owner, a state owner with un, essentially unlimited resources who could uh, could destroy um, the marketplace for players by just picking off the best guys, drawing up lists of the best five midfielders and best five strikers, and buying them as they felt like it.
2: That's a terrific point, Duncan. Because another one of the brothers, Sheikh Ahmed, he was involved in setting up um, M, uh, Etihad Airlines. And we all know they're the principal sponsor of Manchester United, uh, Manchester City, I should say, and, um, and they sponsor the stadium. So you can, you can see the conflict of interest. And then again, um, with Mansoor owning Al Jazeera, and their, um, one of the accusations about circumventing the rules was the money Mancini was paid to be a consultant to Al Jazeera, Mansoor's other club. I think it was £1.75 million a year. Now, my office was a David Silva free kick away from um, Al Jazeera. And in the four years I was there, I never saw Mancini there once. So um, he was either really well paid for that for that gig, or you know, um, he was.
0: Get, I think he bought a cloak of invisibility.
2: Oh, okay. Money. <laughs> <laughs> so you these things need to be cleared up, otherwise clubs can can just run a mock, not they?
1: Exactly. Yeah, and and obviously the the idea um, behind paying Mancini uh, part of his salary in. Uh, Abu Dhabi is that that, um, sal- that element of his salary over there would be tax free um, not subject to um, income tax in the UK so a, f- a form of tax avoidance and obviously not go in the books at Manchester City and help them um, uh, meet financial pair, uh, fair play reg- regulations or appear to meet financial pair, fair play regulations as it turned out
0: Gentlemen um I have to say that that was one of the most insightful and entertaining um, conversations we've ever had about FFP and Manchester City. But I would like to move the conversation on now from the politics of football to football itself and the FA Cup final being played at Wembley tomorrow between Manchester City, as mentioned, and Watford FC. And I would like to get Kevin involved first of all to say you've been around the players, Kevin, and the the coaching staff and everything else and it'd be very very interesting to get your sense of what happens in the build-up to this game at Wembley but not only that the sense of excitement around Watford Football Club uh, regarding um, the fact that they have this opportunity to obviously uh, play in the final again and, um, and the possibility of even obviously upsetting the odds and Manchester City's fabled domestic treble. Um, what's it been like? What's the atmosphere been like amongst the players and coaches? What's, it, uh, what's the atmosphere like even
2: in the club, around the employees and even you know with the fans themselves? Yeah, the mood was very um, downbeat after um, Sunday um, Watford were, suffered a heavy defeat at home to West Ham, lost 4-1. And the kind of key left-back Jose Holobas, was sent off and it was about as far from as perfect preparation as you can get for an FA Cup final. Um, I believe Holobas had absolutely no chance of getting that overturned. Um, just Watford have had failed to have red cards overturned to Caput and Dini this season. And then you go back further afield when Balak and Blanc, Blanc missed key games. Keane and Scholes missed the, um, the 99 Champions League final. So there was no real precedent for these things being overturned, but... Staggeringly, there was a bit of common sense shown at, um, at the FA in, in, in a new shock move um, and it was overturned. And that has really lifted the mood and, and, and changed the perception at the club this week. Um, there's now kind of a sense of a bit of a, a wrong's been righted. Um, it's given them a sense of momentum going into the game and, and Holabas is, is a real key figure around the place. Um, a real key player. And it's been strange, I guess, because there's been games that have come thick and fast with the Champions League and the final round of the Premier League matches, it, it hasn't really sunk in Watford in the cup final, but they held their press conference, um, FA Cup press conference on, on Wednesday. And then it really started to think sink in. You started to think, wow, Watford are really in the, in the FA Cup final and um, Etienne Capoue, Troy Deeney and Javi Gracia spoke. And it was very much, uh, they had their game faces on. It was battle mode, particularly Deeney. Um, he kind of... Uh, Bridles at, bristled at suggestions that kind of Watford kind of should just go there and enjoy the day, um, almost as if kind of Watford have won a competition to be in the final. Um, that's a brave question to ask um, to ask Deeney, but he kind of rallied back at that. Um, and, and there, there is a, there's, a, there's a real sense they've, they've got a chance. They keep citing how Wigan beat Manchester City in their 2013 final, how Wigan beat them. In the, was it the quarterfinal stage last season or the round before that last season? So yeah, is, it was. Yeah, that's right. Kevin, there is yeah. there is precedent, and 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 I think the thing is, why not? Why shouldn't it happen to Watford? And and there's a sense that kind of there's been this whole campaign, kind of imagine if imagine if it was our turn. Imagine if we did it. Um, and I think they got a, more than a fighter's chance simply because they've got Gracia, shall I say, at the wheel. Um, but this this kind of bus has got a full set of tyres and um and has and has had a full service in much better working order than the bus Ollie was um is <laughs> Oli's in charge of, um but he, he gives him a fighter chance here because I just think he'll have something up his sleeve um Ian um I just go back to when he was in charge of a uh, Malaga he got uh, a nil nil draw uh, at Malaga against Barcelona he beat Barcelona at the new Camp. This was in 2015. And this was a season Barcelona scored 110 goals in the league and he kept them to a blank in both games. And I won't need Duncan to remind Duncan, this was a season Barcelona won the treble, they won the Copa del Rey, La Liga and the Champions League. So that was no mean feat. Um, And and it's no fluke either. The the, the following season, he got a 0-0 draw against uh, Rafa Benitez's Real Madrid um, in the Bernabeu. And then previously to that, while he was at little known Osasuna, he got a 2 2 draw with Real Madrid and a a 0 0 draw with Barcelona. So this is a guy who knows how to set up against the big boys. Um, He's got a reputation as a bit of a a a slayer of the the big boys in in Spain. And it was fascinating that Yeti had, um, I think it was in March, Watford lost 3 0. But that scoreline doesn't really do justice to how the game panned out. It was nil-nil at half-time. And if you remember, it hinged on an offside goal that was given to Raheem Sterling. And that changed the complex of the game. And in the press conference afterwards, um, Guardiola was asked kind of, what gave you a real run for your money in the first half. And, And he said, it's no surprise to me. No surprise. He said, I know all about Gracia. I know what he did against Barcelona when he beat them 1-0. It was actually Luis Enrique's team. And his quote was, that was the Barcelona team with the most talented players I ever saw. So it was no surprise to him. Um, And he knows Gracia will have something tactically up his sleeve to try and counter what um, Manchester City are going to do at Wembley. Now, it's not an easy task, because we all know they're being touted as possibly the greatest Premier League team of all time. But I don't think it's a foregone conclusion It'll be fascinating to see what what Grazia does, and I don't think Manchester City will will have it all their own way.
1: How did um, How did Grazia set up against Manchester City in the two games earlier in the season? Did he use the, a standard shape, or did he do anything different
2: in those two see, games? He, he loves a four four two. Every game without fail, he's played four four two. He's played it at the Emirates. He played it at Stamford Bridge. He's played it at Manchester uh, Manchester United, where they've been exceptional, and the results haven't done them justice, but. He's kind of gone, um, he, at the Etihad, he went 5-4-1 he went, uh, um, with a lone striker and just wants to kind of flood the midfield. He kind of wants to stop Manchester City playing in those lines. Um, yep. So Guardiola knows he will come up with something. And he's also got this analyst on board called um, Isidre. He worked under Guardiola and Luis Enrique at Barcelona. So he's been doing a lot, a lot of work on how... Guardiola might set up, and I've just got this sneaky feeling they got something up our sleeve. Now it's one thing being kind of forewarned, and another thing forearmed. But um, I, I can see Watford kind of keeping in the game for an hour seventy minutes, and, and then perhaps kind of having a go at the end. But an early goal will kill it. And, and as Brighton found out the other day, I kind of if you if you take the lead against um, Manchester City, it kind of makes them angry and goes up through the through the gears. So kind of you wanting Watford to score, but knowing on the flip side, it might make Manchester City angry, but he's got the players tactically working so well. Um, I think he might play I think he 4-5-1 with, with with Dini as a lone striker, play three in the middle of midfield and try and match City up in that key area. But I think he wants to get somebody in on Fernandinho. Now, whether he asked Dini to drop back and, and do a job on him or whether he asked one of the three midfielders to do that, but they really see Fernandinho as, as the key man And and as the pivot.
0: Duncan, given how much pressure is on Manchester City now regarding obviously their exit from the Champions League and the opportunity to do an unprecedented domestic treble, which um, is clearly something which again would make another set of records palpable for Pep Guardiola. Do you think City goes to this game with a little bit of nerves rather than with a, a massive amount of confidence?
1: Um, well, we saw with Guardiola last season that getting to 100 points uh, was very important to him. He wanted to set that record. He wanted to be able to say, "This is I am the first coach and this is the first team to get 100 points in the Premier League season. And he, he kind of whipped the players to focus on doing that, even though the title was won months in advance so the domestic treble I think is a, it's a bit of a bizarre one it's never been done before but um, the idea of something really special is, is strange when you've got teams who have won a treble that included the European Cup uh, Manchester United being the obvious one um, uh, which is obviously a superior thing to the domestic treble but it is it's a, a little bit of history and it's as I say Guardiola seems to like these things so I think that will help retain focus there to, to try and get them through and get that extra trophy. Um, you, we all saw that they, um, they, uh, the players celebrated intensely their their league success and got the club into some, some significant trouble by allowing a video of their uh, of their celebrations and, and one of the, the supporters songs they were singing um, to be released into the public domain. Uh, and I and I think I don't think uh, Manchester City interestingly because Manchester City is usually very good from a PR perspective. Um, their direct their communications project is usually very sure-footed and, and well thought out, and which is not surprising given what we've been talking about in the podcast about Manchester City being principally in the first place a PR project for Abu Dhabi. I, I was surprised in the way that um, City tried to. Kind of talk themselves out of that uh, of the players uh, singing that chant and suggesting that it wasn't uh, as offensive as people were claiming. It was it 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 was um, that that's atypical for Manchester City, maybe a reflection of the pr- pressure they're under from these UEFA, FA, FIFA um, investigations into uh, their behaviour over the last um, decade. Um I I I think I agree with Kevin I think that there's a possibility there for Watford. Um I think we saw in the Brighton semi-final uh, how close Brighton took City to to getting the result. Um Watford have clearly got better players uh, and a better coach and um this is the big focus for them the chance to to win a trophy. So if they can set up the right way and they can frustrate um Maybe the focus of the players won't be as intense as the focus from Guardiola is on this game and and they could just sneak a result. But but really, the quality is obvious. Um, Manchester City have been by far the best football team in in England this season. Um, In domestic competition, they've been fantastic. In Europe, big questions about them. Um, On the pitch as well as off it. But they are obviously the better side and if they do the right things on Saturday, you would expect
0: them to win the game. Kevin, I'm going to invite you to disagree with that and tell me what your um, prediction for the score will be at Wembley at,
2: uh, on Saturday. Yeah, I think it's interesting because this isn't kind of a, a, a Watford team kind of, uh, a giant killing Watford team cobbled together with kind of players from lower leagues. I, I think it's easy to forget in, in someone like Pereira, Roberto Pereira, who will play on the left. This is a guy playing played in the Champions League final You've got Gerard Delafoe, played at Barcelona last season. Etienne Capoue was at Tottenham. You've got Abdoulaye Ducouré, who's been linked with Paris Saint-Germain. Again, I could go on. You've got Ben Foster in goals, played for England. Craig Cathcart, former Manchester United. So this is not a, not a team of minnows. This is a team who, who, who can seriously punch their weight. Um, I just think they need to... I use a cricket analogy. I've used it all week. Kind of need to keep wickets in hand. They need to get to kind of if it's a fifty over game, get to forty fifty overs. Make sure they get wickets in hand, and, and then have a charge at the end. So, if they if, if they manage to execute the game plan, luck goes their way, and stay in it after an hour, sixty five minutes, seventy minutes, and then perhaps have a go in the last twenty. Then there may be some hope there. But an, an early goal will kind of be will be. Um, will be game over but I, I do give Watford generally a, a fighter's chance um, I, I really do I think if, if Watford are going to win it's going to be 1-0 and, and, Watford and City might have to have sent, someone sent off so if Watford are going to win it's, it's going to be 1-0 I think That's very precise
0: Duncan so I'm going to challenge you with the same <laughs> uh, What do you think will be the outcome? Um,
1: I will go for a 3-1 Manchester City win
0: When will Watford goal come that's going to be crucial
1: You can, If you want to be that precise with the predictions... Excuse me, Kevin
0: Kevin has been very precise with his predictions. This is the standard now, Duncan. I'm expecting the same from you.
1: Yeah, I I do this on a regular basis, so you've got to realise that the the skill to doing it on a regular basis is to avoid being specific unless you're absolutely sure.
0: (laughs) Yes, we have experienced this in the Transfer Window podcast in the the past, so we will forgive you for that. Um, Right, now to... um, The legendary quickfire round and in um, recognition of Derby County's uh, historic win at Elland Road uh, this week in terms of the fact that they were the first club ever in a championship playoff semi-final. The first leg at home and then win to go through to the final. Um, I'm sure all of you, and if you have not, please search it on social media seen the Frank Stop Crying Frank Lampard video where said uh, Chelsea legend leads the singing in the dressing room of the Leeds song which effectively takes the mickey out of him for the way he complained about Spygate as well as the, um, the 1-0 win that Leeds recorded at the city ground um, in the first leg of the semi-final. Uh, is wonderful, um, it's what football's about. And I'm now going to ask our esteemed uh, pundits what their favourite Wembley song is. It doesn't have to be about the FA Cup final. It just has to be about Wembley. Um, I'm going to go to um, Kevin first
2: because I feel that he may well have something that we all love and agree with. I think I'm going to delve into Elton John's back catalogue. Um, he obviously famously cried at um, Wembley in 1984 when Watford lost to um, Everton Um kind of I'm still standing um, developed as a, a bit of an anthem for the club recently the players won out to it instead of um Z cars recently um I'm not sure any of us would be standing if um if Watford win the um if one, Watford win the FA Cup on on Saturday but let's just hope they don't go breaking my heart eh oh, now you see
0: you see listeners that's where you get your podcast quality a man who knows his references <laughs> knows his order or ex word I should say mm. and brings it to you First and foremost magnificent. Now, I'm expecting an even better one from Mr. Castles.
1: Uh which you won't be getting.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> shock shock horror.
1: Um I yeah, Scottish football fan, Dundee United fan, Wembley doesn't really figure uh, much in, in my uh uh favourite song lexicon. I think it would have to be Tartan Army, uh where we're the famous Tartan Army on her on our way to Wembley. Um which hasn't happened very often recently, but I feel Ian that you want to you want to deliver something here because we know that you are a legendary karaoke singer with um, with our friend Graham Hunter. So, what would your uh, Wembley song, your favourite Wembley song, be?
0: See, that's a hard one, actually, Duncan. Um, you may you may think it's easier to choose your favourite Wembley song, and and the fact I asked the question has no bearing whatsoever on what answers I expected. Um, I, I tend to be a, a man who loves. A little bit of kind of uh, anecdotal history, and I think um, Ricky Villa and Ozzy Ardiles singing the the Tottenham song um, about Spurs are on their way to Wembley because they actually said Tottenham Hotspurs in the uh, <laughs> in the recording, which which kind of lends itself to that kind of legendary kind of um, you know. Uh, not quite true, but maybe you'd like to be to believe it. Sense of um, what actually happened. So um, I will go with the, the yeah. Spurs are on their way to Wembley um, for my and and the Gaza obviously cup final. So that's my favourite Wembley song, regardless of um, you know I, club allegiances or anything else. Um, I just think that's really quite funny, and um, I think it's the one that most people will remember in terms of um, their. Sort of re- retrospective notions of history regarding
1: Wembley and songs. So, um, I, thought, I thought you were going to give us Diamond Lights there for one. very day. Oh
0: God, no! He, That's he a dreadful, had a like dreadful. Dreadful, opinion, you dreadful. You? <laughs> oh, dreadful, dreadful. Chrissy Waddle, what were you doing?
1: Um, <laughs> how did you know? About, how did you know about Ian's mullet, Kevin?
2: It, it was it was a byline, wasn't it? A picture byline in one of the um, in the red tops he used to work on. <laughs>
0: what Diamond Lights was (laughs) buy Diamond Lights exclusive (laughs) right okay with uh, this particular mirth uh, we're going to close the Transfer Window podcast for Friday shut Uh, if you want to continue the debate then please do Um, uh, our pundits Mr Kevin Affleck is at Kevin Affleck um, please don't confuse him with his twin brother, Ben. Um, we also have Duncan Castles at Duncan Castles. I'm at Garb Westgate, And we have our own account as well at Transfer Podcast. Now, as we know, thousands of you love the podcast and we would like to engage more of you in our community. So if you've got the time, give something back and uh, go onto iTunes, give us a five-star rating review. That helps us to increase the numbers of people You get to listen to the podcast, but also join the debate with us. Um, We will be back next week to fulfil all your podcasting needs on Monday, Wednesday and Friday. Uh, So for now, enjoy the FA Cup final. I'm sure uh, Mr Affleck will, and we certainly hope he does, and will come uh, back to join us in a future podcast. Um, But for now, thanks for listening.